Hey, welcome back to Crucial Conversations. I'm Peter. I'm Kevin. We are continuing our series on Christology. Kevin, last episode was episode 42. Wow. And I wanted to do something special for episode 42 because 42 is, you know, the answer to life, the universe, and everything. That's a quite non-Christian book that you're quoting there. I I, I would say it's not just non-Christian, it's quite it's anti-Christian. Anti, yes. And and yeah, it's, I completely forgot that it was episode 42. So now here we are in episode 43, having done nothing special for 42, which I guess is appropriate since it's anti-Christian. Was that Jackie Robinson's number? Well, yeah. See, that's good. But that has nothing to do with Christ either. Well. he. Are you going to make the argument that he saved baseball in some way? I just I don't like, know enough about him. I just to, seem to like him. Okay. We're we're for him, aren't we, in general? <laughs> is that good? He was a great player. Yeah, he played really so well. I, I know that much. Yeah. So here we are in episode 43 in our series on Christology, and we're going to do similar to what we did last week. We're going to take a verse of the Bible that talks about Jesus and kind of work our way through the Christological implications of it. I said big words. Lots of big words. <laughs> Lots of big words there. Okay, what's our quick definition of Christology again? Christology is how we talk about Jesus. Okay. Well, we're going to do that. Yeah. (laughs) Hopefully, while avoiding heresy. Well, that's good Christology. (laughs) Orthodox Christology is talking about Jesus by avoiding heresies. Ah, so you can have heretical Christology. Heresy is the big fancy church word for saying things that aren't true. False teachings. Okay. And so the big churchy word for saying things that are true is orthodoxy. See, I I, th- I think saying things that aren't true, I don't think quite captures heresy. Because here, here's the thing. I, I see a lot of people want to condemn people as heretics. Well, a heretic is different than heresy. Wrong. Okay. Yeah. So heresies are anything you say that isn't true. That's a heresy. That's okay. a false teaching. A heretic is someone who says something that isn't true, and then someone corrects them, and they say, I don't care what you say. I'm sticking with my untruth. That's what makes you a heretic. Uh, so you can mess up, and if you receive correction from your brother or sister in Christ, and then say, ooh, I misspoke. Sorry, I didn't understand that doctrine correctly. And then you correct your teaching and say, ooh, I want to say what's true, like what Jesus teaches us to say in the Scriptures. <laughs> you stop being a heretic at that moment and become... A repentant Orthodox theologian. Okay, but I'm still a little bit uncomfortable with that, only because I immediately think of, oh great, what are people going to do with this information? Because of what I've seen people do with this kind of definition, which is, as soon as I can label you a heretic, I can put you in a box over on the side, and I That's never heresy. have to listen to anything That's you heresy. say. <laughs> That's false teaching. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't <laughs> yeah, I mean, just because people abuse the, the word doesn't mean it's not the right definition of it. A heresy is simply a false teaching. Okay. That's all it is. And a heretic is someone who continues to teach false teachings. Well, then we get into the mark and avoid, which we're talking about First Timothy. The what? The whole mark and avoid false teachers and heretics. And so now you've given me permission to, like I said, mark and avoid people, which, okay, I'll be, I'll be honest. One of, one of the things I wish to avoid is shoving people to the side and not listening to them at all. Because I don't think that approach as brothers in Christ trying to converse with each other and learn from each other is actually going to be helpful. You're looking at me weird, but I think I'm also explaining this weirdly. 
So just because <laughs> I, I say you know what I mean. <laughs> just because I say just because you say something that's incorrect doesn't mean I push you aside and label you forever. But it does mean that we have to discuss what you said. Okay. And I can say what you said is heresy. Sure. That doesn't make you a heretic. That makes you someone who probably made a mistake. So the problem comes when I say this is what the church has always taught. This is what the scriptures teach. This is what Christ himself says. And then you look at me and say, I don't care. I'm going to say what I want. That's when I say, <laughs> now you're a heretic. Right. And when you're a heretic, you're in late, you're in danger of not being a Christian. That's actually right. a problem. So this isn't, this isn't a motivation for me to say, I get to dismiss you and tout how right I am. If the motivation is for me to be right, that's by the way, heresy. <laughs> See? So, it comes full circle. Yeah. So this is when when you start talking about right and wrong, you're talking in terms of law. Okay. So if I label something as wrong, that and if I label me as right, I'm still not in the in the realm of the gospel. I'm still in the realm of the law, right? So now, yeah. if my righteousness is greater than yours, what have I achieved? Nothing. It's pointing people to Christ that matters. So I'm not labeling you as a heretic or an orthodox person. I'm, But I might say, hey, you know, when you said that Jesus gave up his divinity when he was incarnate, that's not the way the church talks about this. Mm-hmm. That's a heresy. Sure. And if you say, I don't care, I like it that way. Then I say, <laughs> okay, now you're in danger of not believing correctly. But if you say, oh... What did I say wrong? Help me learn how to say it correctly. Why would I label you anything but a person who's learning how to correctly confess Christ? Well, part so part of what I'm thinking here is for this series, you've actually been listening to non-Lutherans. Oh yeah, lots on of them. Christology, tons of them. People where we would say oh, they're really wrong, and we've had discussions where you've pointed out, okay, they're they're great here, but they got it wrong there. Yeah, absolutely. With this definition, you could say, well that's heresy or they are heretics right. or something of that nature. Absolutely. Which then, well, Kevin, why are you even listening to them? Shouldn't you be avoiding them and only finding pure Orthodox Lutheran sources that you, to, to, for any of this, why are you even going in those other directions? Well, that's a weird question because, um, <laughs> <laughs> but the, well, it's a weird question because we're going to have one of those guests on our podcast in some future point too. Yeah, and, and so why would we do that? Well, because he's a brother <laughs> in Christ. And See there, that right so, there. But how can you say that while at the same time saying he's a heretic or that's heresy? That's the tension I'm trying to get us at. Yeah, but it's an artificial tension, is what I'm trying to get you to, oh, to understand. Okay. Is that just because people on the internet label people something doesn't have anything to do with anything. The church labeling somebody a heretic means that the church has confronted this person with false teaching and they have refused in front of the entire church to repent. And hmm. this isn't something that one person looks at someone and goes, oh, you're a heretic. No, this, ah, is, okay. this is the church at large saying this teaching is condemned. So anyone who clings to that teaching, which the church has publicly condemned, is now a heretic and hmm. therefore outside of the church. Okay, how does so, the church do that nowadays, though? Like, well, that's there, the problem. There is no so, represent. So we don't have councils. We do. <laughs> we have what's called the Book of Concord of 1580. Ah. And so we say the Lutheran confessions are where we go to say, how does the scripture handle these issues? Right? So we look at soteriology. How is a person saved? Mm-hmm. And there's a lots of different theories on how someone's saved in the Christian church. 
So uh, one theory would say we're saved uh, as the result of an individual decision to accept Jesus into our hearts or to ask Jesus into our hearts. Mm-hmm. And so we look at that and we say, well, that's, that's an interesting way to talk about this. Is that what the scriptures teach? So you read the scriptures and you say, actually, no. I don't see that. That's not the way the scriptures talk yeah. about this. Um, and then another group of people say, well, you know, people are saved if the little bit of goodness that's left in them from the creation and the image of God kind of works together with God's grace and through the through enough good works, then God will be pleased enough to include you into his kingdom. And Christ died in order to facilitate that grace of God so that, you know, his grace plus your good works will eventually end up with salvation. And we yeah. go, that's a fun way to talk about it. Nope, that's actually not what the scriptures teach either. I don't see that one either. As a matter of fact, that leads to a bunch of other problems with how much is my goodness and how can I be good and all kinds of problems, right? And so what we say is, well, you know, when we read the scriptures, it it says that we're not saved by our works, our merits, our satisfactions, but we're saved by the grace of God through faith because of what Christ has done. And that's kind of what it says. It's justification by grace through faith because of what Christ has done. Augsburg Confession, Article 4. That's Mm. what our churches teach. So when it comes to how does the church talk about heresy, false teachings, orthodox teachings, when you go back to our episodes that we talked about on the Athanasian Creed, on the the creeds of the church, those are the documents we look at and we say, okay, if we're going to talk about the Trinity, the first thing you got to look at is, is the Athanasian Creed agreeing with what you're teaching or are you teaching something that's contradictory to that Athanasian creed because this is what the church has said yeah this is true this is good teaching this is mm-hmm. correct teaching so if you're teaching something out of line with that uh, you're in danger of being a heretic <laughs> right so so then you need to go consult all the sources you can to say it, am I teaching something that's in accord with what the church teaches or am I am I doing something new novel something mm. different and and that's where you get really in danger of being a heretic is when you don't want to conform your teaching to the church, but you say, I'm going to teach something that no one's ever taught before. Um, I think the whole church is wrong, or I don't care what the church says. Yeah, or I'm going to teach something that the church in the past did say was heresy, but I've now decided, nope, I think that's actually... I like it. That's the way it is. Yeah. So so that's that's where we go with heresy and and heretics. So so Christology, then, is, is the godly pursuit of trying to learn how the church has historically rightly confessed the Christ, right? Mm, yeah. How do we talk about Jesus in a way that's faithful to the scriptures, faithful to the way God himself would have us talk about his son, Jesus Christ. So that's Orthodox Christology. Heretical Christology or heresies that have come into Christological conversation are methods of teachings or teachings themselves in which the Christ that's discussed is different than what's presented to us in Scripture. And again, the basis for all this is the basic Christological formulation of the Scriptures and of the Church is that there's one Jesus. He is the Christ, right? So there's not two or three Jesuses running around. Mm -hmm. There's one person of Jesus Christ, and that person has two natures, Right? There are two natures in Christ, mm-hmm. the human nature and the divine nature. Now, you can't have multiple Jesuses running around, and you can't change the natures. You can't combine them. You can't smush them into one. You can't separate them. <laughs> can't confuse you, them you with can't each confuse other. can't confuse them, all these different things you can't do with them. 
Yeah. And that might sound weird, but so, but as we talked about last week, sometimes the best way to confess is to say, no, we don't mean that. Because someone will say, oh, what you mean is the two natures in Christ are like two boards that you can pull apart and say, well, this <laughs> this this part of Jesus is the divine part, and that part is the human part. And we go, no, it's not like that. <laughs> They're two natures in the person of Christ. And then say, oh, so the two natures got mixed up into a new substance. Right. And we say, Neat, but no. That's <laughs> so this not new it. third thing that's right. neither divine thing, or human. It? Yeah. And they say, well, okay, so the body of Christ is human, but the the soul or the mind of Christ is divine. And we go, again, neat, <laughs> but wrong. Right? So those are the major heresies. And we say, oh, well, okay, so Jesus is God man, meaning he's really a man that God chose and maybe infuse some divinity into him for part of his life or you know kind of adopted this and then maybe fully transformed him later something along those lines and again we go neat fun but wrong (laughs) right so we so those are condemned heresies um we might even go so far as some people would say well jesus isn't really divine in and of himself he's just a man that god used for Mm. divine purposes and we kind of go, that's just right out. <laughs> You're not even trying. Yeah. And then another another one was is that Jesus is really just God. He doesn't. He's not actually human at all. He just looks human. He just has the appearance. He just appears to be human. Yeah. And we, and we go again. That's fun, but no, that's wrong. <laughs> so those are kind of the major categorical heresies of Christology. And they all have nice ancient names, which at some point we'll talk about, but we're not going to do that now. It's basically, they Nestorianism, have- Eutychianism. Apollinarianism. Yeah, there were a couple more in there Arianism, too, but those are the big ones. Docetism. Adoptionism. Dynamic monarchianism. Okay, I guess we are. Those, just aren't gonna, those fun? But now but now we're, we're gonna, gonna leave, we're gonna leave it up to up. the listeners right. to connect the dots. Connect it's like the, dots. the, the, the test right. in college we have the two <laughs> columns. Line them up. Here's the definitions on one side, here's the titles on the other. Yep. You dear listeners. Connect the dots. All right. If anyone is still listening, the whole point was to get to a Bible verse. Well, no, that was the thing. Like, we didn't plan to talk about this heresy thing at all. It just kind of popped into my head. And yet, it it does lead us exactly to where we're going in scripture today because how you view these texts and how you read them, there can be some disagreement among Christians where I can still call you a Christian. But at the same time, they're going to lead down dangerous paths. So, so the the, ver- the passage that kind of stuck out with me this week as we're as we're thinking through is in First Timothy, chapter two, and I'm going to read verses five and six. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Okay, so we're talking about Christology and who Jesus is, and this one clearly says Jesus was a man. Okay. I, I think this, once again, it's, it's, it's the reminder that you have to take all of what Scripture says about Jesus together. You, you can't overemphasize or cherry pick your passages. And so, Kevin, my question for you is, why is Paul emphasizing the man in this passage? And why don't we take this as all right, this is the definitive passage that trumps all other passages about Jesus, and he's a man. There you go. Well, he is a man. We 
we confess that. We don't <laughs> deny it. We confess it with Paul that, that Jesus Christ was a man, is a man, oddly enough. Is yeah, a man. that's, that's was, another weird, is. mind-blowing so, thought. I was saying was, meaning historically when Paul was writing about him, but he when still he, is a man. Yeah. So we don't deny it. We confirm it. We say, yeah, that's exactly right. And um, one of the blessings of our Savior being a man is that he stands before God and represents mankind. As a matter of so fact, the, the man is here, that the mediator part. The of word this? "man" here is not necessarily male man. It's it's not male man like the guy. <laughs> it's like wait a minute. Like male as in andros, but it's the word anthropos, which which really means human. It's more of the. I mean, it can mean male human, but it often just means generally human. Okay, is that the Hebrew word Adam? That means kind dirt. Of? Oh, that means dirt. Yeah, I thought it meant man. It means mud. That's Clearly, when you have I a friend have named not Adam, studied say, Hebrew. Your name is Mud. <laughs> um, yeah, so um, no, the, the Hebrew word is not Adam. For okay. Me. It's Ish. Ish? Ish. Okay. Yeah. So I've learned something today. Isha is a woman. So, um, so the, the idea here is, is simply that. One of the the blessings we have in having a Savior who is human and divine is that he represents us before God, right? Mm-hmm. He actually stands before God in the place of all mankind, and he represents those who are in him before the Father. So as Hebrews says, we have a high priest who stands before God, and he's able to identify with our weaknesses because he's tempted like we are. And he represents us before the Father. Um, First John says he's he's a paraclete, like the Holy Spirit's paraclete. And paraclete is a fancy word meaning he helps those who need help, which is kind of fun. Um, it's even not stands he helps those who help themselves. No, he doesn't that, help those who help themselves. I was told that that was in the Bible. Yeah, you were told wrong. That's a heresy. I, yeah, I knew that that's when I was told it, but I was told <laughs> yeah, I've that been told that's that in the too. Bible. Um, so, so in this passage. It's really fun because if you if you look at this passage or listen to it being read, um, go ahead and read it again to us. All right. For there is one God. Stop. Why would Paul say that? Because he's about to say something that sounds like maybe it's not that? Nope. Where, where, how was Paul raised? What religion? What nationality? Oh, he's a, he's a Jew. Yeah, and what's important in Judaism about there is one God? Well, the Shema. There that's is the one great God. Shema. Yep. So any I do Jew, know that Hebrew word. That's right, which means, <laughs> what does Shema mean? I don't hear. know. It means to hear. <laughs> oh, okay. okay so Hero, English, Lord. Hero, Hero Israel. Israel the Lord sorry, God, the Lord right? our God is so one. So it's the first yeah. word of the verse, right? Shema. Gotcha. Hero Israel. Okay? So Shema Israel. So the, the point here, and this is what's so important about this verse, Paul was a Pharisee, right? Mm-hmm. One of the most important, actually, the most important thing about being a Jew is that you're a monotheist. Yeah, there is only one God. One God. And that's why the Shema is so important. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Mm -hmm. So you'll hear this throughout Paul's writings. He will affirm the Shema. There is one God. One. And his name is Yahweh. Right? We know that from the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. So then he says, and there's one mediator between God and man. Right? The there's man. Not Christ. another God. There's yep. not another God. There's a man. The man Christ Jesus. 
So according to Paul, there's one God, and the mediator between us and him is the Jesus. man, Jesus. Mm-hmm. Isn't that cool? And you go, uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, no. Now, <laughs> go to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to show you this because this is totally cool. Okay. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Why are we going to 1 Corinthians? And it's not some other weird book in the Bible. Um, Who wrote well, it? The, well, Paul. Paul, because it's so the same it's author. Paul talking right. as Paul does. So. so it's Paul talking again. So the same We'd assume author he believes the same thing from book to book. Not going to change all of a sudden, yep. right? So listen to what he says in verse 6. Well, let's start at verse 5. So 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to read verses 5 and 6. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many lords and gods or gods and lords, which what he's saying is the food sacrificed to idols, that's what this chapter is about. He's like, yeah, lots of people have fake gods, right? They make up Mm -hmm. gods all over the place. There's tons. If you talk about the deities in this world, there's tons of them. You have the pantheon of the Greeks, the pantheon of the Romans, the pagan gods, the the made up gods, the gods of Babylonians in the Old Testament, the gods of the Assyrians, right? The, the Egyptian the gods, gods the, the that the Egyptian Jews are going to be very familiar right. with. Yep. All that kind of stuff. So he's like, yeah, sure. We start talking about gods. There's tons of them. Yeah. But what does he say next? Yet for us, for Jews, or in this case, for Christians, Christians yep. right? For Christians, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, now remember, Lord is the Greek translation of the word Yahweh from the Septuagint. Okay, but mine doesn't have like the all caps Lord. It wouldn't because in Greek it's just curios. Oh. Okay? But listen to this. For us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things are, for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Do you see what he just did? He applied the definition to both. Yes, Same he just thing. he just included Jesus in the one God of the Shema. Hmm. Wait a minute. What? <laughs> Paul, a monotheistic Jew who is now a Christian, but says the God of Christianity is the same God as the Old Testament, right? That's his whole thing. Mm -hmm. So a monotheist is now saying that Jesus Christ is included in the one God of the Shema. Now, go back to 1 Timothy. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So now we have Paul confirming in his writings that he believes that Jesus is both divine, Mm -hmm. because he's part of the one God, and he is explicitly a man. Yeah. Explicitly. (laughs) So the same author, and this is why this is important, same author of Scripture, same allusion to the same Old Testament verse, the great Shema, one God, right? That's the key. Hmm. And in one passage, he equates Jesus Christ with the divinity— in 1 Corinthians 8. And in another passage, 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says that Jesus is a man. What do we do with this? Well, you the, either have two Jesuses running around, one that's part of God yep. in the Shema, and another one that's a man, or you say, in this one Jesus... There are two natures. There are two natures. Yeah. Divine and human. Well, what I found interesting is where where this comes in the context of... First Timothy chapter two, 
because it's, I don't remember what I was reading when this verse jumped out, or maybe I heard it read in, in church or somewhere and it jumped out. I was like, oh, that's a Christology verse. We have to talk mm-hmm. about that. And I was just, just the reference. Well, today, as we're prepping for this episode, I went and read the whole chapter, and then I read all of First Timothy, because it's not that long. So it's like, okay, let's just read the whole thing. That's kind of how this is supposed to work, people. Right. That's good. I, I looked at this, I'm like, okay, this treatise on who Jesus is, these two verses just kind of comes from nowhere. Right. The, he's not talking about who Jesus is before this. He's not talking about who Jesus is after this. It's just, boom, here it is. And I think it's this... You'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's this mediator word that is actually the important one because he brings this up in the context of prayer. And Paul is telling everybody, he's well, he's telling Timothy, pray. Here's how to pray. Pray for these different things. And here's who you're praying to? Is that how this... Mm. Is, is that what this is? Or like, here's how you can pray. Okay. Why would God listen to you? Oh, it's the why question. Yeah, I mean, gotcha. What right do you have to pray? It's not the how, it's the why. Okay. So, yeah, it's this. It's in a chapter that begins with with prayer, but it also is this little subsection that says, "This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth." Then our verse. See, so, and this is another major part of Christology that we need to continue to, to make sure we emphasize is that Jesus as one person with two natures, it's always done. Everything he does is because he comes to save us. So yeah. classic Christology says that the state of humiliation, the state of exaltation, the attributes of the two natures, the action of the one Christ, the, the nature working together to communicate their attributes, it's all for the point of salvation. It's all done in order to save sinners. So that why did Christ have a human nature? Why does Christ have a human nature? To save us. Yeah. Why does he enter into the state of humiliation? In order to save us. Why is he in the state of exaltation? To save us. Why is he also divine? Right. To To save save us. us. Why is he human? To save us. To save us. So so that's kind of the drive of all this, is this isn't a philosophical idea of, woo, wouldn't it be cool if there was a God who was also a man? It, and we just think about these things. It's not for the purpose of incomprehensibility. No. And I, th- I think that's part... Sometimes we, we go the wrong direction when we think this true statement that, well, if he's God, we're not going to be able to comprehend him. It's going to be beyond our understanding. And so if we find something that's beyond our understanding, well, maybe that's God. Right. That's not actually what's... While that may be what's going on here, that's not why right. it's going on here. That, yeah, that's kind of like a byproduct of, I have no idea how this works. He's well, God. That's, that's always a byproduct of theology, is that you're saying what you can say, always understanding that you can never comprehend God. We are simply trying our best to speak back mm-hmm. or re-speak mm-hmm. what he has told us. Yeah. And... The wonderful thing about the Bible is it's really long and there's lots of words in there to to read and learn. <laughs> the frustrating thing about the Bible is it doesn't actually help us speak in every circumstance. You can't just always quote an exact Bible verse. Sometimes you kind of have to say, 
things that combine Bible passages, which the New Testament authors show us how to do when they quote the Old Testament, right? Sure. They'll slam together different passages. <laughs> We're like, why are you doing that? And they say, because it's because they're they're teaching the overall theology. It's not just quoting Bible verses and saying, see? Or they're completely making up something new. Like when Paul says, Jesus was the rock that right. Moses hit. You're like, what? Hold on. Really? That's never been said before. Right. You're he's, the first one who said he's, that. He's actually... <laughs> <laughs> learning how to read the Old Testament in light of what Christ teaches him to do, which is this is all about me. Yeah. That when God shows up, that's me. So the point isn't the incomprehensibility. The point is this is for your salvation, salvation. which is simply another way of that we've been saying, read it through the lens of Jesus. Right. It all points to Christ. It's all about Jesus. Well, here's another way of saying that is, it is for your salvation. The reason we talk about these things is, in one way or another, this has an impact on whether or not Jesus can actually save you. Right. So we have to kind of go forward now to something we've been mentioning over and over and over without actually explaining it, <laughs> which is that in classic Christology, we talk about Christ existing in two states. Oh, yeah. And of course, it's Kansas... The- and Missouri. No, that's not, uh, that's not it at all. Right. Really? So Christ exists Those in two states. Those are the ones you're going to pick, well, Kevin? you know. I um, mean, we know it's not Kansas. Well, I'm from Kansas, and we live in Missouri, so... I know. That's the best I could do. So I don't so, think it can be either. Christ exists in two states, and the states are the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. Which we did have questions about this when we put out the notice in our Facebook group that, hey, we're going to do a series on Christology. Right. There are a couple people that were like, ooh... Okay, those two states, let's let's talk about that. Why why does that matter? Right. And so. how do we conceive of such things? And this is where um the Apostles' Creed is extremely helpful. Apollo Creed? The Apostles' Creed. So what does boxing have to do with this? It just doesn't. So that when was a you, dumb joke, but I you, had fun really making was. it. <laughs> Especially since the reading today in chapel was about Apollos, which was kind of weird. Oh, it was. Um, yeah, yeah. So when you read the Apostles' Creed... At least the pastor didn't make my same dumb joke during chapel. That's a good thing. (laughs) So when you read the Apostles' Creed, um, the second article, which is about Jesus, actually lays out the two states, humiliation and exaltation. Oh. It's in order, and they are equal. So you have five steps in both. Okay, ready? Okay, I'd never thought about it that way. the state of humiliation is described in the Creed thusly. The first thing is conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That's the first step. Conceived and born. That's the first step of the state of humiliation. Then, suffered under Pontius Pilate. That's number two. Crucified is three. Died is four. Buried is five. Those are the five statements about the state of humiliation in the Apostles' Creed. Now we're going to have five statements of exaltation. So then, in the state of exaltation, starts with descended into hell. The third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and the fifth one is, will return with glory to judge the living and the dead. So you have five things that describe the state of humiliation, from the conception and birth, that's one, down through the burial, that's the end of the state of humiliation, and the state of exaltation begins with the descent into hell and ends with his return to judge. Okay, so that was the question, why is the division... With the descent into hell, why isn't 
the state of, why doesn't the exalta- state of exaltation begin with the resurrection? Well, because and is there debate on this? Because part of the question was, has the church seen this in two different ways throughout time? Well, the the church has seen that it is sent into hell in different ways. But those who take an orthodox view of it is sent into hell, that it was not for suffering, but to proclaim victory. Ah, then which is that's First in Peter the state. Three, is First Peter three is okay. kind of the major text. Uh, there's some others that may allude to it, but that's the major text people go to for the doctrine of the descent into hell, which honestly is a very minor doctrine in the history of the church. It just kind of is in the creed, so it becomes mentioned a lot. Okay, but there's not there's not much to say about it other than he he doesn't go there to suffer. He suffers on the cross, and and that is finished with his work on the cross. And he says so it's finished. He said it's finished. That's, so we'll, that's our cue that we'll he's done everything. Go with that. <laughs> and then he rests in the tomb. And then the ascent into hell is the first step of his exaltation when he goes to proclaim victory over death in the grave. Hmm. And then he rises from the dead. He ascends into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, which means he has all power and authority. And then he will return as, as the judge of everything, right? The almighty judge. Mm-hmm. That's pretty divine. So the state of humiliation, Just this is the quick and easy way to think about it. The state of humiliation is that Christ voluntarily refrains from the full use of his divine nature. Okay, so in the state of humiliation, Jesus voluntarily refrains from the full use of his divine nature. So full being the key word there, because he clearly does use it at times. If we're talking from conception all the way to his death, well, you've got all those miracles right. happening in between. And you have the transfiguration, which Ooh. he looks really divine. Was that... Okay, did he do the transfiguration or did the Father? Or how does that play it into doesn't. this? It's the divine nature. Because I've never really thought about that as, okay, who actually did that? Or is we, it, it just... It doesn't say. He he was ah. transfigured. So okay. it's his divine nature. A lot of people say it's his divine nature kind of poking through. Right. It's a kind of a lifting of the veil. If yeah, you will. so the curtain is pulled back for a second. You see Christ in his divinity, then it's quickly closed again. Um, but the but the point of of this state of humiliation is that during the state of humiliation, he doesn't lose his divine nature. He is still one hundred percent divine, one hundred percent human, but it's a voluntarily refraining from the full use of that divine nature. So Jesus dies. Well. The divine can't die, right? <laughs> God can't die. God can't die. So there he is voluntarily refraining from the full use of his divine nature of immortality, hmm. right? He's refraining from that. Now, he still has the divine nature, but this is voluntarily, meaning according to Je- Jesus who's willingly doing this, okay? So then the state of exaltation is simply the full use of his divine nature. Okay, I've now thought of half a dozen questions that we're probably going to have to get to in the next episode, so I'll just ask one of them for now. Okay. Did his divine nature work in any way so that he did not sin? Okay, so... Because that seems to me, it's like, okay, well, he had the divine nature thing helping him not to not sin, so that's a... Okay, so we're not going to separate out divine natures when Jesus is doing something. The Gainus Apotelismaticum says that whenever the person of Christ does something, both natures are at work. You simply ascribe the work to a nature because that's the one that's most apparent. 
Okay. Okay. So he dies according to his human nature, but the divine nature is present because he doesn't lose natures for a time. So we could say everything he, Christ does, he does with both natures. He refrains from sin according to his human nature, or according to his divine nature. Okay. Right. Well, actually. <laughs> See, this is this is a whole other debate, which is why I'm trying to get around this. And I know that's yes why I'm saying no. it brought up a whole bunch of questions because now we're getting into the weeds, right? And this is and this is why Christology is so important is because you can quickly mess up. Yeah. Um, the point is not which nature allowed him to be sinless. The point is the person of Jesus was sinless. The one person of Christ that has two natures was sinless, is sinless. Well, and, and this this matters, once again, if it's for my salvation. Right. I I think of this question because, well, depending on the answer, was his sacrifice, was he really humiliated enough in order to pay for my sin? Did he fully go through all the suffering and the temptation and fulfill the law and all that kind of stuff if it was, if he was kind of cheating? I mean, right. maybe that's what it comes so, down to. It's like, so well, the he question kind of cheated, not, so can he really actually die The question is which for... nature allowed him to be sinless. The question is, was his human nature sinless? That's actually what matters. It doesn't matter how he was sinless. The question is, okay. was his human nature sinless? Or was his human nature corrupted with the same sin that corrupts our human nature? Don't we have to say no? As in the corruption, he can't be corrupted the same way we are. That's the important thing. Okay. So when Christ died... He was the perfect sacrifice because he is fully sinless. His human nature was without sin. Okay. Even though he took upon himself the punishment for all the sins of all mankind, he never sinned. So his human nature was sinless. His divine nature was sinless. The person of Jesus, sinless. Right? Mm-hmm. So that, and one of the things that we'll get to as we discuss classic Christology, we got to go pretty soon. But one of the things we'll get to is the concept that if it wasn't assumed, it wasn't redeemed. So if Christ didn't have it, he couldn't have redeemed it. So if Christ doesn't yeah. have a human nature, how could he redeem it? But he has a human nature. Now, what this brings up, and this is why this is important, we'll, we'll not finish this today, <laughs> is that this helps us it's understand. A cliffhanger episode. Yes. This helps us understand the confession that the human nature is not to be identified with original sin. Ooh, that's a big one. Because Christ has a human nature and yet was without, without sin. sin. Yeah. That's why these things are so important to be careful about what we're talking about them and to make sure that what we're saying is exactly what the scriptures confess. Because ultimately all of this is for your salvation, for my salvation, for, as uh, Paul says just a little bit earlier in that passage that we read, because God desires all men to be saved. And that's the crucial conversation. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks.